Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. So you don't have to, to worry or feel uncomfortable. Oh, man, it's, it's Valentine's Day. He's doing Song of Solomon, isn't he? No, don't worry. That's not, that's not the topic tonight. Um, no, and, and I, last week I said, well, next time they're gone and, and people are gone, they call me up, we'll take a break from Genesis. I'm sorry, I do have some passages from there. Problem is, with, with the Bible, you go through it, and so much of the stuff's interconnected, and so... You know, I had to dip back into Genesis a little bit, but uh, it's not going to be our focus like the past few times you've, you guys have had me up here. Um, so what we're going to talk about is what do we mean when something is kosher? Is it that salt that's the really big chunks? Or maybe it's those pickles, those certain pickles that you see in the store. Actually, for you guys flying... It's what you asked for on the plane, the kosher meal, because you, you didn't want to have any pork on the flight. Or maybe it's, it's what uh, the ancient Israelites ate. Or is it the food that the modern-day Jews eat? And, and in American parlance, if, if something isn't done 100% correctly, you, know, you always hear people say, well, it's not exactly kosher, blah, 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 blah. Right? In, in American English, we use it as a synonym for correct or right way of doing things. And if you go back to the original meaning of the Hebrew word, we really haven't strayed very far from that intent. Kosher, it, it means that something that's advantageous or proper, suitable, and to succeed. And we see it in the Bible three times, but not in the context of the dietary laws. We have it twice in Ecclesiastes and once in Esther. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Okay, They said kosher in there, but that's the word they translated. And then also in Ecclesiastes, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper. And then in Esther, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king. Those are the three spots that kosher's in the Bible. So why exactly do we now use that word to describe the eating habits of the Israelites when in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they always use the term clean and unclean? Well, because kosher, it can mean proper or fit people started using that word to describe what is clean to eat. Is there a difference between the dietary laws uh, that we see in the Bible and what's practiced today by rabbinic Jews? Yes, there is. And there's much more rules for keeping kosher under rabbinical Judaism than under the Mosaic law. So while we're talking about what most people think is kosher, we're going we're gonna to just use what the Bible language, language uses and say clean and unclean. So we first see clean and unclean mentioned in the Bible when God is instructing Noah. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, 
you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. In that passage, we're not told what makes an animal clean or unclean. Uh, We're not even given an example of what a clean animal is. It just says clean animal. Is it a donkey? Right? We don't know. It's, It's not specified in there. And well, not in that passage, though. It just says load up clean and unclean. So the ancient Israelites, when they're reading Genesis, they would already know what's clean and unclean, so they wouldn't need to be told that information. It'd be superfluous, right? If, and it, it's not important because the reader knew it, so they left that detail out. What's important about the passage, it's just like with Cain and Abel, when they talk about uh, a worthy sacrifice, is that God had already told man what was needed for proper worship. Not all of the Mosaic Law is new information or new revelation when we read it. Some of some of the, of the Mosaic Law, it's a codification of a previous revelation that was given. So, for example, when we learn uh, with Cain and Abel what was a appropriate sacrifice, that, would, that was already told to people, but then they codified it with the law. We tend to think that if God's words were not recorded in the Bible, then he was silent or did not speak. However, we need to remember the words of John about Jesus and his miracles. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. God telling Noah to bring clean and unclean, it's not an anachronism on the part of Moses, the way some scholars think it is. Noah already knew, or... God had told him what clean and unclean was, and they just didn't record that part in the story. Either way, the concept of clean and unclean was not new to the Israelites when Moses was explaining it to them, and it would not have come as a surprise to them. So where then do we get the first recorded instance of what not to eat? Remember back a couple weeks ago at Noah and the covenant that God made with him and his offspring after they left the ark. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So as humans, we can eat anything except blood. Flip forward a few more pages, and we see new instruction on what, uh, what you can't eat. However, this prohibition, instead of for everybody, is just for the Israelites. Genesis 32 uh, Verses 22 and 32, 22 through 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford at the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, 
Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the, pa- the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. As you can see, this this, uh, prohibition is not a command of God, but rather a tradition. They refrained from eating the tendon that keeps the thigh connected to the hip as a memorial and remembrance to when Jacob saw God and became Israel. It is an important moment for the Hebrews. Not only did it give them their namesake, but it tied them into the blessings of God. It is a moment to celebrate and remember. There's nothing wrong with making this choice, but even though it is lumped into modern kosher rules, it's not a hard and fast dietary law like the ones that we see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I don't eat tendons. You most likely don't eat tendons. So why is refraining from eating this particular one important? Well, to remove this tendon from a cow or sheep or other animal, it is very time-consuming and requires great skill. Only the best and most experienced butcher, or sukkot as they are called by the Jews today, are able to do it. Today, however, they don't bother with removing the tendon. It takes too much time and it's not profitable. So today's Jews simply remove the hind legs of the cattle and then sell them to Gentiles and process the rest of the animal to be sold as kosher meat. And while that's more efficient, it loses the main point of observing that prohibition. If you have to move slow and take your time to remove this tendon, you're able to think and contemplate about how this same tendon was shrunk in Jacob and gave him a limp. The limp that with every step reminded him of how he wrestled with God, saw his face, and was blessed by him. The ancient Israelites could reflect on that while performing this lengthy and tedious act. Additionally, I'm sure that children would see that the Sukkot was doing and then ask why only that tendon was removed from the animal when the other ones were being left in. It would create an opportunity for parents to teach their children about the past and the promises of God. The next prohibition that we see is now in Exodus, and it seems rather strange. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This this same command is reiterated again later in Exodus and in Deuteronomy 14.21. At face value, it means you shouldn't cook a kid, a young goat, in its own mother's goat milk. Rabbinic Judaism interprets it to mean that you shouldn't mix meat and dairy products. Others speculate that boiling a kid in its mother's milk was part of a pagan fertility ceremony and thus should be avoided by the Israelites. Yet others, myself included, think that it's related to a command about finding a bird nest. You know, it doesn't seem related, but we'll get there. If you, this is from uh, Deuteronomy 22. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall not let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long. The prohibition on boiling the kid is because it's not right to kill the mother and the young at the same time. It's an image of both generations being consumed. It's not right to extinguish life so fully. Just like their commands when they were to wage war, they weren't allowed to cut any of the fruit trees down of cities they were sieging. They could cut non-fruit, but not the fruit trees, because you don't want to fully take away that life source, that food. Both generations should not be killed together. So that's my interpretation and take on the, the mother's milk. But now let's get into the, the meat of the Israelite dietary law. Pun fully intended. I knew you would appreciate that there. Um, in Leviticus, after God explains what's an acceptable offering and how to worship him, he then tells Moses and Aaron what is permissible to eat as an Israelite. We will read each uh, section by class of creature, analyze the criterion for inclusion as clean, and then after that, we'll speculate on why these uh, are the creatures allowed to be consumed by the Israelites. So we're in Leviticus 11. This is verses 1 through 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but it does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So to qualify as clean, the land animal it needs to be vegetarian. You chew the cud. No predators or omnivores. They must have a cloven or split, split hoof, and they must chew its cud. Today we classify those animals as ruminants. Deuteronomy 14 gives an example of the Israelites of additional animals that are clean. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. So what are other animals they could eat that were not specifically mentioned? Well, cows, obviously, because the Levites would eat uh, part of the cows when it was the certain types of offerings, uh, but not the burnt offering, as we learned last week. Technically, the Israelites could have eaten giraffe, they could have eaten yaks, or even moose if one somehow wandered down from Europe to the Middle East. Caribou? Yeah, so there's, there's lots. It's not a specific list. So with the land animals, we see here's the set criteria. Anything that fits this criteria is good to you. So now uh, we're going to go to the next set of animals. Leviticus 11, 9 through 12. These you may eat of all that are in the waters 
everything in the waters that has fin and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales, of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. In the Hebrew taxonomy, they make no distinction between fish, marine mammals, sharks, skates, rays, shrimp, lobsters, bivalves, and so on. They're all labeled as fish or sea creatures. And that's why it seems redundant and obvious to our ears when we hear fins and scales. Well, of course fish have fins and scales. However, when you, uh, you lump pinnipeds and cetaceans in there, you really do need to make that distinction of if it's in the water, it needs fins and scales. Um, essentially, most of the creatures that we consider fish are clean. Um, there's the misconception that all bottom feeders are unclean, but that is not that is not true. Halibut are clean. I think this confusion comes from catfish being unclean, and people conflate it to all bottom feeders are unclean. What we call shellfish, that's going to be a no-go. Not only do they not have fins, but they don't have scales either. Same thing with squid, snails, and octopus. A good rule of thumb is, would Dean like to eat this? If, if the answer is no, then it's not considered clean. Um, my seafood preferences, it lines up surprisingly well with the Levitical law. So if you need me to test if something's clean or unclean, just put it on my plate. I'll let you know. We're, we're going to get to that. Yep. There's, there's, there's a, a point to learning all the laws first. All right. And uh, so then we think back into creation. They're grouping them the way things were grouped in creation. Not the same order as creation, but of the different groups created. It's also how they group clean and unclean. So now we're to the flying things. Leviticus 11, 13 through 19. Unlike the land animals and sea creatures... We are not given a set of criteria to determine if something is clean, but rather given a list of those that are not to be eaten. If you examine these birds, you see a commonality and that they're either, oh, I got to read the passage first before uh, talking about it. Sorry, let me jump back. Leviticus 11, 13 through 19. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, and the hoopie and the bat. So, as I was saying, we're just given a list. It's not a criteria that you follow. There's not a formula you can apply to see if it's clean or unclean. It's the naughty list, essentially. And so, 
if you look at it, though, there is a commonality between these ones that are considered unclean. And they're all either raptors or carrion, with the exception, of course, of a bat. And with, with that, those are all birds that are going to be dealing with dead things. Um, so why do we have bats lumped in with all the birds? Is this an error in the Bible? As uh, I've seen all those atheists claim on the internet. No, it's uh, the Hebrew word, oof, if I'm pronouncing it right, literally means flying creature. And what is a bat? A flying creature, right? So it's not a mistake. It's just a different way of grouping animals than we're used to. We're used to more specificity, whereas they just lumped it all. Does it fly? It's in this category. Um, in, in Genesis 1, 20 through 21, we read this. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. So every time in English that we read it there and we see the word bird, it's technically flying creature in the creation story and throughout the Old Testament. Leviticus 11, 20 through 23. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Is this another supposed error in the Bible? Insects don't have four legs. They have six, right? Well, think of a grasshopper. They have four legs up front and then two very different legs in the back that are jointed and attached to the body at a higher point than those front legs. And those back legs are used to hop. The Bible, when describing here, is doing exactly what crickets, grasshoppers, and locusts look like. Four feet, two legs. And after this passage, that's really the only time that you end up seeing grasshoppers and locusts referred to in the Bible until we get to the New Testament. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. John's diet was unusual both for his time and ours, but it was in line with the dietary laws. Did God declare locusts clean to give provision to John? Isaiah prophesied that John would be in the wilderness to do the Lord's will. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. There's not much food in the Judean wilderness. As Alaskans, we tend to think of wilderness as densely forested and full of life. But the wilderness that John was inhabiting, it would have been rocky and dusty with some small shrubs here and there. Not exactly teeming with life. Locust was probably his best option for sustenance. So while it may seem strange and out of place to make locust clean, 
it could have been a way to, uh, to enable John to keep the dietary laws and show that he's an observant Jew while ministering in the wilderness. Or perhaps it was allowed so that in a dire uh, situation or emergency, the Israelites could keep their dietary laws. Leviticus 11, 26 through 31. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the morning, the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind. The gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. So now we see that not only should you not eat an animal that doesn't chew the cud, that has a split hoof like a pig, but even touching them will make you unclean. Um, and then in this passage, we also have more animals added to the unclean list. We've got cats and dogs and other animals that are like them that have paws. Um, you can, but unlike the pig, you can touch them when they're alive. Just don't do it when they're dead or it will make you unclean. Rodents and lizards aren't clean and you should avoid touching their dead bodies as well. Leviticus 11, 41 through 43. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground you shall not eat for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. So this section there, it covers snakes, frogs, salamanders, centipedes, ants, basically everything else that wasn't previously mentioned or talked about. So with the Nahoic Covenant, all living things are permitted to be eaten by man. However, the Israelites now have restrictions and are only allowed to eat a small portion. Well, why is that and what exactly makes the animal clean? A very popular view of why God made certain animals clean is that he did it for health reasons for the Israelites. This was an explanation that was told to me when I was a kid. Um, unclean animals can have a, a higher risk of disease if not cooked properly. Take trichinosis in pork, for example. And bivalves can accumulate toxins, pollution, and poisons. However, animals that are clean can also have health issues. Chicken is clean, yet is very susceptible to salmonella. Tuna and salmon are clean, but they can accumulate and carry high amounts of mercury. Halibut is clean, but sometimes it's very wormy. You have to cut all that part out. And as we just saw, swarming things like worms and insects like that are unclean. But on the ob obverse, there are some unclean animals that are very healthy and beneficial from a naturalist standpoint. Horse is unclean, 
yet it has a very lean meat with more iron, uh, vitamin B12, and omega-3 fatty acids than beef does. Camel is another good example. They're unclean. They're specifically mentioned in the Bible as unclean. Yet their meat is lean, rich in protein, iron, and zinc. An another view is that God prohibited the animals because they were being used by pagan peoples in their worship of false gods. I don't think this is a, a good theory because bulls were deemed clean. They were eaten by the Israelites. And they were also used as sacrifices to God. But if you remember uh, in our Bible, when we've read about the different cultures there, the Egyptians worshipped the bulls, so did the Canaanites. So if God was wanting to make animals used by pagans unclean, why wouldn't the cows and bulls be considered unclean as well? Why would he have them be used as sacrifice? I believe the whole purpose of the dietary law was to make the Israelites different from everybody else. Health benefits was just a nice uh, consequence of it, but not the intended purpose. It was made to set them apart. By abstaining from particular foods, they were making a distinction between themselves and the world. Not partaking in something the world does makes eyebrows go up. As the abstainer, you feel a separation from the other party when they look at you. I went to a public college. Um, and if you go to a public college, sometimes the people there aren't always on the up and up, right? And you get offered all sorts of things. But not going to certain parties and not indulging in drugs when offered to you, it makes people look at you differently, and it causes them to stop associating, associating with you. You stop getting invited to things, right? Israel was to be a holy nation. To be holy is to be set apart. From Exodus, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in Deuteronomy, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Israelites are to be set apart. If one was to be strictly observant with these dietary laws, there would be a barrier that would naturally arise with you and your pagan neighbors. You know what happens to a vegan when someone throws a barbecue? They don't get invited, right? By refusing to eat certain animals, they would be isolating themselves from the rest of the inhabitants of the world. So where does that leave us as Christians? Are we to adopt these customs? No, they're not required. These dietary laws were ceremonial for the Israelites to make them set apart. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, the curtain has been torn. Galatians 3, 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, 
have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So there's no reason now to have this separation, to be separate and put apart from the other nations. And then we also see in Peter's vision that Gentiles do not need to adopt the ceremonial law. We don't need the separation anymore. Acts 11, 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them uh, in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I, but I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. The, these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And we also see in Hebrews that the ceremonial laws were only needed until Christ came. And this is Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. Okay, What they mean by Reformation there is not, in our mind, not Martin Luther, this is way before him. Uh, they're meaning the coming of Christ there. When they're referring to the time of Reformation. Again, in Colossians 2, 16 through 17, in case the new believers weren't sure yet, they're going to be told over and over again, you don't need the ceremonial law anymore. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, 
but the substance belongs to Christ. So here they're saying that all that ceremonial law, that was just the precursor so that when Jesus arrives, you would notice and see that he fulfills it. The main point of the worship is with him, not these laws. So we have freedom in Christ. There is no prohibition on our diet, no clean or unclean. However, we're held to a higher standard than the law. This is Matthew 15, 10 through 11, and verses 17 and 20. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, this is Jesus, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So what's easier to do? Pass on a trip to Red Lobster during their all-you-can-eat shrimp special? Or to not think lustful thoughts? Is it easier to not have pork or to not hate your neighbor in your heart? What is easier to control? Your heart which, har- which harbors evil thoughts or your mouth eating roasted ants? Following the dietary law is easy compared to the standard of holiness we are now held to today. If you feel called to follow the dietary laws, go right ahead. You have the freedom to do so. Uh, just like the many Christians who have decided to be a teetotaler. Remember that it is not a requirement, it does not save you, and it does not make you more holy or pure. But what was the point of learning the intricacies of the dietary law if we're not bound to it? Well, it helps us understand the worldview of the Israelites. They continually thought in terms of clean and unclean. It allows us to understand when the Bible uses metaphors to describe various nations in terms of cleanliness and animals. It helps us to understand when the law is misused. When Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees about the eating habits of his disciples, um, by knowing what was commanded by God, knowing these dietary laws, we're able to see that those Pharisees were getting upset because the disciples were not following a rule that was added to the dietary laws. Rules that were added by man, not God. Without a clear understanding of the law, it'd be easy for you to think that the disciples were indeed violating God's law. By learning the law, we're able to appreciate the freedom that we do have in Christ. I'm going to end it with a prayer here. Lord, as Gentiles, we thank you that we've been made part of your family. We are grateful that you set Israel apart to protect them and make a path for our Savior to be born. We acknowledge your law for the Israelites and thank you that we are not under that burden. We thank you for the freedom that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to have clean hearts and clean thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen. So there is a little bit of time if people had questions or want to discuss or have thoughts.
feel free. Yep. Mm hmm. Uh huh. Yeah, they have to have both fins and scales. So, like cat, they've got them on the top, and they have them when they're young, so they count as kosher, as clean. Catfish don't have the scales, so that's why they're considered not. They've got like that weird smooth skin. Um, but yeah, halibut would be considered clean, and then. Um, with like the modern rabbinic Judaism, they'll have discussions about like things like sturgeon that have scales, but they're really hard scales. And go, well, should we eat that? Does this count as a scale, even though it's harder than most fish scales? And so some people err on the side of caution. Don't eat that. Uh, these people also get into fights about, well, is it scales that you can just brush off, or do you have to soak? Do you have to soak the fish for the scales to come off? Is it still considered clean? So that's that's what I mean about the about how man kept adding more things to it by the time Jesus comes around with all these extra rules and laws because people, oh, I don't want to accidentally eat something that was unclean thinking it was clean, so we'll make this new rule. Okay, if you have to soak it for X amount of time, then it's not clean anymore. Or people would be like, well, it doesn't have scales. Well, it did when it was young, so we'll count it, right? And so they add more and more laws. But if you don't, if you didn't read the original rule, um, then you just assume that what was being taught in the synagogue, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. So when the disciples were eating and they hadn't washed their hands first before they ate, the Pharisees are like, "Well, you're violating the our laws." It's like, "Well, you you added that. That's not the same level as volition as uh, you know actually." of them, you know, frying up a side of bacon or something like that, right? I don't know exactly when that started, but yeah, in the modern rabbinic Judaism, if you're really committed to it, you're going to have separate dishes, ones that are used for meat, ones that are used for dairy, and some even will do kitchens that have two ovens, two of everything, and this is my refrigerator that has dairy products, and this is my one that has meat. And they, You can really go overboard with that, and that, it's one of those things where, you know, it's, it's comical in one point because you're like, well, let's just think of the, you know, practicality of that. Is that really what they meant? Is that, well, now you're going to have to have two sets of everything in your kitchen? Was that really the point? You know, and it's the thing where then you feel sad for the people that they, they really are slaves to this law rather than accepting Christ and being in his freedom. But that is true in the, in the modern rabbinic tradition. They, it's not just you can't put them in the same food together. Well, you don't even prepare them on the same things. And some even took it so far as, uh, like, let's say you had uh, eggs with cheese for breakfast. And, well, now I'm going to have some beef jerky. Well, no. It's only been three hours since you've had breakfast. It's not long enough. And so different schools of, of Judaism have different time limits of how soon you can eat meat after having dairy products. And it's one of those things where it's just like it's more accretions on top of each other of 
well, you guys are totally losing the whole point of these laws in the first place. Now this is just some rule book that you're following and you're trying to find every loophole you can. Any other thoughts? You <laughs> pass the bacon. Thank you for letting me share with you this evening and hope that you uh will take something from it. But it's yeah, I just I think going through a lot of the the law and it's kind of dry reading through it and sometimes some of the laws are kind of a head scratcher and you're like what like that's that's what you guys are going to focus on that's what's important you know those sort of the ones where you got to like think a little bit on them be like all right what are they really trying to talk about but i think it's important to to look at that because uh, when the the different prophets speak and things like that they'll make allusions to these different laws um and so for us knowing how these laws operate it makes those prophecies a little more clear and less uh, vague because with these prophecies, if you do read them literally, it's not going to make any sense at all. But if you read the prophets and you're realizing that, oh, well, he's doing a callback to this rule in Deuteronomy or, you know, he's referencing this, well, then it makes clear the point he's trying to make. Um, it's like it's like kinnings in, in Nordic poetry, right? So you, instead of directly saying the thing, you say a phrase that everyone knows represents that object, right? And so you wouldn't say lightning. You'd say like, you know, the strike of Thor and things like that. So that's sort of what they're doing, just not a Nordic version of it, just a Hebrew way of of doing uh, with the kinnings. But um, that's why I think it's, it is important to go through the law, even though it is kind of dry sometimes and not the, the most exciting reading compared to the, some of the other parts in the Bible, but it's part of our canon for a reason, and um, it's it's worth digging into. Do you have anything you want to close with? Thank you, Dean. That was really informative and, uh, and a wonderful application. I think one thing, it's not, it wasn't in the focus for tonight, but um, let's remember that we have freedom with responsibility. And so we are God's distinct people. And how we exercise our freedoms always have to come with a level of responsibility. And so Paul said on one occasion, he said, when I'm with the Jews, I act as a Jew. And when I'm with the Gentiles, as a Gentile. And so his freedom was always at the mercy of the mission. Okay? And so... Let's keep that in mind. If something that you're doing is offensive, we can claim our freedom or we can recognize that I'm not going to do that around you because I know that would offend you, even though I have the freedom to do that. Okay, And uh, just to know that there's responsibility. There's a lot of New Testament application to that principle. Peter got in trouble because he separated himself from eating with the Gentiles when Jews came down from Jerusalem. And so... Uh, the dietary laws, essentially, they had a they had a big application in what the gospel stood for. And so I really appreciate what you shared, Dean. Wonderful. All right, why don't we stand? Let's have a word of closing prayer. Thank the Lord for our freedom once again. Father, thank you that you've given us freedom. I pray that you help us to exercise 
our freedom in Christ uh, with gratitude and with responsibility uh, towards you and towards our neighbors. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.